Welcome to the historic Ocean House, a luxurious hotel that pays homage to New England's golden age of hospitality. With timeless elegance and renewed civility, this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series. Each program features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation, hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. You'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher-Murray, Kitty Couric, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with the Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to the Ocean House. everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am thrilled to welcome Catherine Ray and Deborah Goodrich-Royce to discuss A Shadow in Moscow. Catherine Ray is a national best-selling and award-winning author of several novels. She has enjoyed a lifelong affair with books and history and brings that love to her stories. Catherine has also written one full-length nonfiction work, she holds a BA and MS from Northwestern University, graduating Phi Beta Kappa, and has lived across the country with a few years in England and Ireland as well. A full-time author and mother of three, Catherine and her husband currently live outside of Chicago, Illinois. And Deborah Goodrich Royce's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Reef Road hit Publishers Weekly's bestseller list, Good Morning America's Top 15 list, and was an Indie Next pick by the American Booksellers Association for January 2023. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021, and Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's Best of Lists in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax Films, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband, Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, Ocean House Hotel, Deer Mountain Inn, the United Theater, Savoy Bookshop and Cafe, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects in Rhode Island and the Catskills. She serves on multiple governing and advisory boards. She holds a bachelor's degree in modern foreign languages and an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Lake Erie College. Catherine and Deborah are going to talk for a bit about the book, and then we will open it up to your audience questions. Please join me in welcoming Catherine Ray and Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Catherine. I'm Absolutely. so happy. We connected a month or so ago in Lake Forest, Illinois, the cutest town, almost as cute as Watch Hill, but sort of almost. different. Almost. Watch Hill is very high on the cute factor. So I have had the chance to read this wonderful book, and you are going to have so much fun. It's really outstanding. And I think one of the best places to start is asking you to tell us, you know, a little bit your elevator pitch of what it is, A Shadow mm. in Moscow. Okay, the elevator pitch, which I'm really horrible about, you know, it's 10 sentences long rather than three. But um, it is, it's really about two spies, two women spies, who start to work for either the CIA or MI6 in Cold War Moscow and all that comes with operating in a city with 100,000 KGB around them and sort of circling each other and the, and the compromises that must be made at the very end in 1985 when Aldrich Ames hands his list to the KGB. 
He hands a list of 25 agents, Western agents to the KGB, basically signing their death warrants. And every Western agency has to get their people out alive. And that's sort of the culmination of these two in the cat and mouse game that they're kind of playing in Moscow throughout the years. So let's jump to that point. It's really extraordinary how you deliciously drop that in the book. And some of you are younger, but for those of you who are not younger, there's a moment in the book where Catherine just drops the name Aldrich Ames. And it's so subtle. She doesn't reveal. But if you know, you know. Uh, he was this counter spy, uh, very high in American intelligence, who turned and was responsible really for the rounding up and the death of a lot of people who worked for us. And it's it's one of my favorite points in the book. Where I, the way it's revealed, I can't remember the wording, but it's so innocent where the characters are going along and someone says, you know, and there's this great new guy in charge, Aldrich Ames, and you think, oh, this is not going to go well. Well, because at the time, in, in 1985, he was actually CIA head of the Eastern European and Soviet Union desk. So if you were an operative in Moscow for the CIA, Ultimately, you reported to him. And so when one of the spies, Anya, is talking to her handler, he's like, hey, Aldrich Ames, Ames, Director Ames has this under control. No worries. And so you're thinking, hmm, how much is this really under control? <laughs> yeah. But of course, you know, Ames was not, not actually caught until 1994. So in 85, when he hands his first list, that's just the beginning of the treachery. In fact, two of the spies I researched wrote a book. They caught him in 94 by tracking the money. And um, he took about $14 million in today's terms from the KGB over those nine years. And they say he's responsible for the deaths of hundreds of agents. Yeah. So the way you structure this novel, I absolutely love. It is a story of two women. And you're really in sort of the World War II and immediately after World War II period in Vienna and in Moscow. And then you're in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s. Two very interesting time periods, two very interesting women. How did you come at it? Was, it, was your launch pad, you know, I want to write about the Cold War, I want to examine these, these moments in history, I want to explore, you know, these characters. Where'd you start? You know, I, I always start with the emotions. I know what a character feels at the beginning, and I know what I want them to feel at the end. And so the first character I began with is uh, Ingrid Bauer. She's the first spy you'll meet. And she works primarily in the first Cold War period. She is um, Austrian-born. She impetuously marries a Soviet diplomat, moves to Moscow. And she is that shadow between expectation and reality. Because despite having to have a job outside the home, in the USSR, they you know, had this great equal society. However, there were no women in the upper echelons of the government, the KGB, the Politburo, the Central Committee, or the Communist Party. She would have been expected to be that consummate housewife, that consummate hostess and housewife. And so she nestles into that perception versus reality, and she listens, she learns, she analyzes, and she starts to spy for MI6. And she's that shadow that everyone is looking at the men. 
and for 30 years, no one's looking at her. But I wanted to counterbalance her with the second Cold War, which is really the hallmark is that arms race moment, the, the nuclear arms race, the Star Wars of the early 1980s. And so that's where Anya Kanova comes in play. And she is Soviet born. She works for the CIA. She's more impetuous. She makes a lot of mistakes. Um, and she spends her university years as part of a cultural exchange program at Georgetown University. And that's where we get that US portion. And also, that opens Anya up to a different way of thinking. The idea that, hmm, I can say things. I can have debates. Things that she did not grow up understanding as fully in Moscow. That's sort of where I came at it. Emotions and counterbalancing them. And two women really, it's also a story about spycraft, but a story about what pushes someone to reach that point where they're willing to sacrifice everything to spy. Because if you start spying for the CIA or MI6 in Moscow, you're signing your own death warrant if you get caught. I mean, like it's a very, very serious thing. And so what pushes what pushes a person to that point and what, what is one willing to do to protect those they love or try to make the world a better place for them? So your understanding of Moscow, of Russian culture, of spycraft, talk to us a little bit about how you came to, because you, to me, you seem to know a lot. So how do you know all this? Or um, can you tell us? No, I, I, definitely, I definitely can tell. Okay, so. Um, a, a ton of reading, like so much nonfiction reading, unbelievable amounts of reading, but also a lot of fiction reading. I wanted to find out how authors were dealing with this time period in this space. So a lot of John Le Carre and a lot of Frederick Forsyth. Um, but then also I talked to a few CIA, former CIA agents who worked in the Eastern European desk area, which makes me a little nervous. They all work for investment banks today. <laughs> um, but talked to a few of them, which was great. And then I also interviewed a couple women who grew up in Moscow in the 1980s. And that gave me a lot of those cultural moments um, and, the, and the context and the feeling of, yes, you know, we had a few friends we could talk to. We talked outside. We made sure we knew exactly who had our backs and who didn't. Um, so it was multifaceted research that never ended but a really big deep dive at the very beginning in the world um, scene. I also had to make sure that everything was post-1991. All my maps, all my references, because in 91, everything changed. You know, street names, park names, city names. Um, so everything, I had to make sure that, you know, you can't look on Google Maps when all the street names have changed. So I had to really look at older maps, et cetera, of to course, get that. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I don't know Russia that well. I mean, I've read the Russian novels that we all read growing up and have done a trip to St. Petersburg. And the thing that struck me, we were there in the early 2000s, and we had this young tour guide, Olga, and she was just very even keel about saying, you know, this was the architecture of Alexander the Great. This was Soviet architecture. It just, there was this neutrality of, it had all just faded into what was seemingly the past then, not so much now. Um, so as you were writing it, talk a little bit about how, what your process is 
so it's nonlinear. It's the story of, of these two separate stories of these two separate women. Did you write all of one, all of another, or did you write it as we read it, the way it's woven together? You know, it's a little bit of both, um, because Anya really does, her storyline starts in about 1980 to 1985, whereas Ingrid's storyline is 1944, just a moment in 44, but basically 55 to 85. So yes, one spy covers 30 years, one five years, and they do dovetail. When there was an emotional moment that I, I was really into Anya's voice, say, then I would proceed with her further. But otherwise, I tried to dovetail them because each spy handles many of the same situations, but in very different ways. And I wanted the chapters and the women to play off each other. And I wanted them to interact, both in the language I used and in the events or the um, challenges they faced. And so if I'd done them each individually, they would have run side by side rather than talking to each other. And I wanted to make sure they talked to each other. That's how I do it as well, because I feel in your books, and I, I try to do the same thing, you, you dangle something at the end of one chapter that picks up from it and gives you just another piece of the puzzle, mm -hmm. which you need. And I yeah. think if you write them completely separately, you can weave them together, but I think yeah. then it's double work right. because you've got to create the endings and the beginnings that make sense and make sure you don't mess anything up. So Vienna, what, what is your relationship with Vienna? I loved the beginning and we returned to Vienna. And yeah. I, I don't know Vienna well, but it's a magnificent city. It is. I don't have, I don't have a strong relationship to Vienna as I do with other cities, but in uh, 2019, my um, middle child and I went on just a mother-daughter trip to Prague, Vienna, and Budapest. And we fell in love with Vienna. And if, you, if you're in my family, basically the only way you get to see a city is if you can walk it. Mm -hmm. And so when my kids were little, like 10-mile walks, I mean, like we walked them everywhere. And so that's what Elizabeth and I did. And we walked all over Vienna. And I loved the history. I loved it. It was actually a huge spy place. It was sort of that central, central melting pot in the Cold War that's because it was outside the Iron Curtain and yet so close. There's a lot of KGB there. But it was almost this great city that allowed me to play with both spies in the whole world still set in Europe. It gave me that little outdoor that I needed for the book. I needed that distance in some ways. I did not want the whole book to be trapped within Moscow. And um, Vienna, I'd been there. I loved it. Its culture is so different. It was so funny. When you go to Budapest and you eat the country food, and delicious and, um, uh, you know, very much like your garden. And you go to Vienna and you eat the pastries. And you're like, yeah, this was center of empire. You know? <laughs> These are all the pastries and the chocolate. And that just fascinated me. So it needed to come into the story a little bit. Well, one of the things that is very striking, and it goes along with what you're saying, you get this feeling when a character goes back to Vienna, or another one, that the, this cafe life, that the whole world is passing through. The whole world yeah. is watching, and you are really at a crossroads of history playing out. And anything could happen, 
and anything could go gravely wrong at any moment. That's Vienna. Yeah. Like, and it, and it had that role throughout the entire Cold War. It was spy central. Really? And it was just, well, it was a free-for-all. Everybody could play in Vienna. And so all the spies were all around. Every agency had spies in Vienna. Did you chart the book out as you were writing it? Did you create like a timeline and a chart? Because it is such a vast 30 years plus of very uh, chock-a-block history. It's a, <laughs> it's a period of history where so much is going on. How, how did you keep that all straight? I did, you know, I, I blocked it out, but I also blocked it out as I wrote it. I do write by emotion. So it's, it's the characters. You know, it's interesting. This is sort of a spy thriller, but character driven. Um, I do write primarily by emotions, and the plot comes along with it. But then, yes, I have to make sure that plot is fully written out so I can keep track of it and all the history that goes along with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a very sort of dynamic process that both worked with each other. And the, the notes, I do all my notes by hand, which is a little bit of a nightmare when you're writing historical fiction, because Shadow in Moscow has four notebooks. And the thing is, I never, ever label my notes. I just write them. And the purpose of that is, when I need a fact, I have to page through all of those notes, it takes a long time, to find a fact. But what's happened is, those 70 pages of notes are now more organically in my head to create the world. I don't know that that's an entirely effective approach, <laughs> but it, it works, but it's, it's It actually <laughs> makes sense. So you're reviewing in All a way, time. and I, I find the note-taking process in writing a novel, we can forget some of the notes that we take. Yes. And I was at a certain point in my latest book, Reef Road, where I was, the book was essentially written and I was paging through the notes, and this particular book is based on a true crime. My mother's best friend was murdered in 1948 in Pittsburgh. And as I was paging through looking for something else, I came across something my mother told me, her friend's father has, had said, that he said to my mother as a 12-year-old, you fought like little Indians, and now one Indian's gone. And I thought, I totally forgot that. I need to put that in the book because it's a it's one of those things that grabs you and the fact that it was true so yeah. i would agree with you it yeah. is important to Keep do that saturating yourself with all that we'll take a short break and be back with the ocean house author series here on wcri And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. So current events. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Prigozhin <laughs> and Putin. And Do we really want to? <laughs> a little bit. So from your point of view, you are clearly a student of the USSR, of Russia. What the heck? What do you think? <laughs> What's happening over there? I, mm -hmm. Wow, and this is going to go on radio. <laughs> yeah, it's on radio. Um, okay, <laughs> to, to be honest, it's, it, I don't think it's as surprising as we all think. And, and what I mean by that is, as I've studied history, you look at World War I, the interwar years, that was, that was lunch break. I mean, it is related to World War II. 
Cold War picks up the hot second that, the, that arms are laid down in World War II. Cold War is running, and yes, the USSR fell, but all of that was churning. And it, it still, it didn't die away. And in third Cold War, you know, everyone has been talking actually for the past 20 plus years, are we in the third Cold War? Everybody's been asking that. Because you had your first, you had your second, is this the third? And now it's just warming up. I think we are, I think we are in the same playbook really right. do. We're in the same playbook and it's just popping up different places because we're very global now. And so we're, you know, back in say World War One. I, I mean obviously it was World War, but you could have wars and skirmishes globally that say America wasn't aware of or say England wasn't aware of something was happening. Now we're fully aware. And so I think this thread is continuing. Same thread being pulled. Right. And so it's hard to see because it's been over a hundred years but I think we are still fighting the same fights I do too actually I think it's all connected and we get connected. very much in with our blinders on in our our little worlds and we don't pull back to 35,000 feet to look at the whole look at the whole picture of what's going on yeah so let's talk about a shadow in Moscow you have the two fictitious protagonists mm -hmm. you have characters who are real and named, like Aldrich mm -hmm. Ames, and then I think you have something in between. Mm -hmm. You have uh, made-up characters that are really based on mm -hmm. real historical figures. Yeah. So talk about that. Okay, so this is just a personal choice. I, if I'm going to have a character and have his real name in it, I'm not gonna delve too deep in what I thought his motivation was or what I thought he would have said. So Aldrich James never actually says a word in the book, um, but he plays that role. His name has power. However, if I want to have someone like Edward Lee Howard, I, Edward Lee Howard also was a CIA officer who betrayed spies, and I wanted him to play, I wanted that idea to play a bit of a role. In the author notes, I'll tell you that the character you met with this name, he's based on Edward Lee Howard. Now, for my fictional characters, I want them to have free reign, and they are truly fictional. Now that said, I do give them little bits of the real stuff. So Anya reaches out to the CIA by dropping a Pepsi can with a note into a US Embassy car. That is the original way that Adolf Tolkachev reached out to the CIA. He was a Soviet engineer, reached out to the CIA in the early 1980s as well. Unfortunately, the CIA thought it was a KGB trap, and it took him like five more times to get them to believe he wanted to help them. So set that stage. Yeah. This is an incredible moment in the book where there's a woman driving in a car, mm -hmm. and this young character, it's, tell what she does. So, so there are lots of cameras in Moscow and at that time, and Anya figures out that D04 is the alphanumeric code that begins every embassy car. So she starts to walk around the neighborhood and watch this embassy car and track it. And she realizes that at one corner, this car, if, they, if she can get a red light, she can pop her Pepsi can in. And she, she does. And the woman, and we track the woman as well, and the woman gets wide-eyed. And so Anya says in a low voice in, America, in, in English, take, it, take this to your embassy. And she walks away, but she circles 
and she watches the car knowing that if the car turns left, like it does every Sunday at that time of day, then the woman is going to go out of the city for her vacation. But if the car turns right, that means she's going to be circling back to the embassy and she believed Anya. So when the car turns right, Anya sticks her hood on and she walks away because she knows she's made contact and the woman has returned to the embassy. So the game begins. <laughs> and go back to the real person who did that. Adolf he had Tolkachev. four He had about attempts. four attempts before the CIA finally believed him. And um, he actually was betrayed by Edward Lee Howard and the KGB killed him in 1986. But he is called the billion dollar spy. And that is because he was a high level Soviet engineer who took photographs of Soviet military schematics and passed them along to the CIA, who then gave them to the US Defense Department and probably saved the Defense Department in the early 80s about a billion dollars. Because they weren't chasing what they thought the Soviets had, they were tailoring their programs to exactly what they knew the Soviets had. So um, he was very influential for our defense systems in the 1980s. Another real story I use is Oleg Gordievsky was the KGB residentura in London in 1985. That's the highest level of KGB officer on foreign soil. And he was summoned back to Moscow and he suspected that he had been betrayed. His, his summoning back was a little too, it, would, it didn't have the uh, sort of please come back, the invitational nature that he would expect. And when he got back, he realized, yeah, this is bad. So he initiated with MI6 Operation Pilmico, which was his extraction plan, which was this whole elaborate plan of dry cleaning, which is making sure no one's following him, then it had him stripped down to his underwear and placed in the trunk of the British ambassador's car. And so I gave that to one of my spies. Well, with diplomatic plates, a car by protocol is not to be searched. So the plan was to drive him from Moscow through Leningrad and up to Finland. And uh, the problem was though, outside Leningrad, a KGB checkpoint had dogs. And they got a little nervous, but clever women, the British ambassador's wife took their baby from the back seat, carried the baby, I think it was a boy, carried him to the boot of the car, splayed him out on the trunk, slapped his dirty diaper on the car, and then when the dogs came by, they sniffed at the dirty diaper, they whined a little, the officers saw the baby, everybody walked on, and Gordievsky got out alive. So I, I gave that to one of my spies too, because it's fun <laughs> and it's real. And so, it's uh, the thought of living like that, yeah. maintaining a cool head through all of that, I, I mean, it is so foreign truly to most of us. Most of the lives we lead, we are not in imminent danger of death, betrayal, being seized, imprisoned, tortured. How did you get in that headspace, because it is so effective in your book, the tension and the ticking clock is very real, and you, you feel it in, in a good way, in all the ways you want to. So how did you do that? You know, I, I started with the idea, it, you know, the novel's named A Shadow in Moscow, but it also could be titled Becoming a Shadow in Moscow, because it, it is much a story about becoming a spy as it is being a spy. And part of that was really you know, I actually looked at philosophy and other things. You know, 
uh, one of the philosophers I looked at was Thomas More. And Thomas More had a line that he could not cross. And when Henry VIII brought him to that line and he couldn't cross it, he was willing to die. And Anya wrestles with that. And so that was really what got me going is, what is that line? And what happens when you cross it? And then even at the very end, how much farther are you willing to go? Um, and, and I had to really think about, and part of the emotion comes from, what would I be willing to do? What would I be willing to do for my children? What would I be willing to do for what I believe is right? So it became, in many ways in the writing, a very personal story, just as the printed letter bookshop. What would I do to save an independent bookstore? You know? <laughs> um, but that, that is, I, I get very into my characters. <laughs> they become very real. <laughs> well, which is what works. I and mean, it's actually an acting technique. I mean, as you heard, I was an actress a thousand years ago. But that is what you do as an actor. You figure out you know, what piece of you is in this character, what part of yourself can you use. Um, how long did it take you to write this book? I think this was about a little less than two years, probably from the very beginning, maybe about a year and a half. Um, I do write fast once I start to write, but I really do take time. I don't write a word until I feel I've done enough research to have that world and that sensorial experience. Only then will I start to write. So of that year and a half, how many months of research, how many months of writing? Probably a good four months of research only. Pretty intense reading, et cetera. And then writing and research as it went on. And yeah. in the four months of research, all the notebooks are put all together. All the notebooks, yeah. Yeah. And when you research our, your source material, are you going to libraries, are you traveling? Are you now fully internet? Um, you know, with, with the shadow in Moscow, I actually was in the Soviet Union in 1985, and that's the last time I'd been there. But um, all of that was interviews, internet, and the library, like stacks and stacks from the library. Um, my next book, The Berlin Letters, um, because things had opened up more, I spent five days pounding the pavement in Berlin in February, which was amazing. And so I, if I have my choice, I will absolutely visit a city live during writing. Most of my books take place in cities I've lived in. I've moved 17 times. So there are a lot of cities I've lived in. Um, so usually I will base that. Because I believe after moving so many times, you don't understand a culture until your feet on the ground. Which is why, to be honest, Ingrid is Austrian born. And is also why. Anya needed that moment away in the United States. I needed to give them a difference of perspective because I don't know Soviet-born perspective. Um, so that's just my own after moving so many times. I think it is one of the things that we as um, Americans often misunderstand in our involvement of different parts of, of the world because we have such a nice life here and we have such freedom and independence and it is hard for us to fathom that other people might not actually value the things that we hold as being of utmost value. So I, I do think you get it that in some of the uh, characters, the men in the KGB, the husband of Ingrid, 
he is essentially a good man. He's not an evil man, but he values sort of keeping everything together and keeping society running smoothly without ripples mm -hmm. and keeping everyone under control more than he could even fathom the concept of individual freedom. Can't fathom it, absolutely yeah. cannot fathom it. And there's one point in the book where Ingrid tells somebody, how can you expect someone to know the color blue when they've only ever seen the color red? And, that, and her point in saying that is, you can't expect her husband to be any more than he is. In fact, her husband was rehabilitated when Khrushchev came to power. So Stalin basically you know, cut a huge portions of society from society if one member of the family did something wrong. The whole family was kind of cut from party membership, et cetera. Well, when Khrushchev came to power, you could apply for rehabilitation. And so according to Ingrid's husband, he has been given everything because his, he was allowed back into the party, back into promotions. So the state has given him everything, so he'll give everything to the state. And, and you, you can't understand that. Um, if that's all you know, not only all you know, but you are so thrilled to be back within, you know, to be right. included once more. Right. And I think with any country, uh, United States included, any country that gets involved in other countries, it is, it is a leap that is very difficult to make, uh, to understand how other people think. It's just not the yeah. same. So talk a little bit about what you're working on now, and then we'll open it up oh. for questions. Right now I'm in line edits, which is the last sort of substantive edit before it goes on to copy edits, um, to a book called The Berlin Letters. And it will come out in Mar on March 5th, 2024. And although it begins the day the Berlin Wall goes up, and it ends the day the Berlin Wall falls, um, it primarily takes place in the last week of the wall, where a CIA cryptologist um, discovers letters uh, written by her father and she works to get him out from behind the wall. And of course we readers when we're reading it we know the wall's gonna fall <laughs> but she doesn't and it's, so it's this really wonderful moment and this peek behind the wall because now we take it for granted that oh the wall fell everything's fine but when you look back at the East Berlin people at that time no one thought the wall was gonna fall. In fact, in January, the general secretary of East Germany said, Honecker said, the wall will main, remain for 50 years, 100 years, however long it's needed. And so that was the mindset, that it would never fall. And the, I, just the sort of wide-eyed disbelief of that night was really fun to dig into. Um, so that's the Berlin Letters, which will come out in March. That's very exciting. Yeah, I so can't fun. wait. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. Stephanie has a microphone and we're going to wait for Stephanie to bring you the microphone. If you raise your hand with a question, we will take it right over here. So I have two questions actually. One's personal, one's pragmatic. Personally, I, years ago I read Essie Hinton refers to herself as a character author. Mm -hmm. How do you refer to yourself? Now I refer to myself as a character author. 
You are, character. I, would, I didn't know that term, but I like it. <laughs> okay. um, character does come first for me. And as I said, it, I begin with the emotion. And so I don't even know what the character looks like or where she is going to go, but I know how she feels. Great. And so I guess that, there you go. Very I have good. a name. Very Thank very you. Good. The pragmatic one is I'm also an English teacher, and we teach Freytag's plot graph. How absurd is that or realistic is that? Is that something we should continue to do with the plot, you know, the um, exposition and rising action, climax, falling action, denouement? Is that something when you're writing, are you thinking about those elements or are we just being silly? I'll tell you why you're not being silly. You're not being silly because that's not, we don't write that way. We absorb stories that way. So therefore, we write that way. Do you see what I mean? I do, yes. That's how the human, that's how we absorb stories. You can go back to the very first basic stories and they're going to have that conflict and that moment of transformation, you know, but what Cinderella decides she wants to go to the ball, I have no idea what it is, but anyway. And then there's gonna be that day mom because that's how humans absorb stories. So yes, keep teaching that way because, because, because really, you know, it is, it is the fundamental way that we absorb them, so therefore it is how we will write them. Does that make sense? It does. Sort of lead it the other way. Yep. <laughs> it does. And, and I would add to that, I do think structurally when I write, I'm always thinking about really a three-act structure, mm -hmm. and I always think of a point in the middle. Uh, I just feel like there has to be that rhythm. It can't be flat. So I do think it is an important thing to teach. Well, I appreciate that very much. I know climaxes can occur at any point in a story, and oftentimes students will think that it's in the middle and then you come down, you know? There is but a moment in the middle though. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, don't forget. Okay. That is the moment of, I would almost say, it's not necessarily the final climax because that's not the final battle. And you can break it out by watching, by watching like 90 minute movies, mm -hmm. which is a great way to actually do it with a kid, very visual. Mm -hmm. Because that, that final climax is gonna come about 75 minutes in or 80 minutes mm -hmm. in. But I promise you, at 45 minutes in, that agency is going to change with the character. It's going to go from reactive to proactive. And so there absolutely is a climax. It's almost that death-rebirth scene, yep. which is very different from the story's climactic scene. But there has to be one. So the kids are right. <laughs> and, and to use the movie analogy, it is three acts, but with that point yeah. in the middle, it almost is four acts. In, you know, and that, the beginning of the, that third act is really the classic. Climax. Thank you very yep. much. Appreciate it. Break track. <laughs> oh, right there. Hello. What drew you initially to the subject matter of espionage? Mm. So, okay. Inquiring gonna, minds. I'm going to make this so brief because I saw they actually have it over there. So I wrote a book that I, I love these three women. I wrote a book called The Printed Letter Bookshop. And on the surface, it is the story of three women trying to save a bookstore. Three very different women. But its meta theme is about three women who are not living their best present. They are either, one or two, they're either looking to the future when everything will be well, or they're looking to the past when everything was well. And it's, a, it's also a story about getting these three women to live their best present. That led me to the London House, which was my first historical fiction novel. And what I wanted to do there was bring that past that affects us all. Whether we know our past or not, it is indelibly printed in us. 
I wanted to bring that past sort of center stage and offer it objectively so that this the present day heroine could find out what happened 80 years earlier that has affected her family for three generations. And so the past is brought forward in letters and diary entries so that she can see what it really was, not what she's been told. Well, now, when you're digging into the past in World War II and the SOE spies of Britain, you just want to know what happens next. So I'm like, Virginia Hall, what did you do after you were this awesome SOE spy? Well, she went back and she worked for the CIA. So then I started looking into the CIA Cold War spies. And then I got to shadow Moscow. <laughs> Thank you very much. So the much. books are not connected, but there you go, the meta theme. <laughs> Hi. I, I'm really looking forward to digging into this thing. Thank you. Um, my question is, it appears that looks like we're going from uh, Khrushchev all the way up to almost uh, Chernyanky, well, uh, Gorbachev. And there was a lot of political uh, drama going on in the Soviet Union at the highest level. You, know, you went through it and drop off, and Brezhnev and Chinyenko and the, yeah. the, whole, the whole deal. Yeah. Um, was there any uh, real shift in focus on what the spying was focusing on during that turmoil uh, at the highest levels in the Soviet Union? Or were they more directed based on spe specific assignments that they were dealing with? Okay, do you mean the spies in the real world or the spies in my novel? Both. Okay, the spies in the real world, real world, um, not entirely sure about. And one of the reasons is from 77 to the early 80s, the CIA did a little bit of a stand down in running um, spies in Moscow. And my sticks was still running them, but the CIA kind of sort of backed off a little bit in there. And, and so I'm not really sure. I have a feeling that if you're running a spy in Moscow, you are taking only what, what they can provide. For instance, Tolkachev was military only. Gordievsky was diplomacy. He is the one who told Margaret Thatcher what to wear and what to say at Yuri Andropov's funeral. So she wooed Chernyenko, and that kind of shifted British-Soviet relations. So he was all diplomacy. Um, so I think you, you sort of take what the spy is able to give you. In my book, I kind of followed that model because it was the information that was available to them. So Anya, reporting on military, she works in a military lab. She's not going to report on these political maneuverings. However, Ingrid is paying very close attention to them. And she is thinking about them and she's wondering who's going to come out of the troika troy troy on top and it's Brezhnev. You know, so it's, sure. it's, it was fun to follow that. Um, with one spy. <laughs> one more quick question. Yeah. Uh, did you notice any conflict or support, either one, between our CIA and MI6 with respect to your characters? Um, well, it was interesting. Because I knew, I knew about, mm, there, there was, there was, in fact, at the, very, at the very end, nobody knew where that list had come from right away. Nobody knew who talked. And so, in a way, I almost separated the two by making Ingrid very secret. Most of MI6 didn't even know she did that because they were so worried about her safety. Because yes, every agency had leaks of one sort or another. I mean, look at the Cambridge Five out of MI6. I mean, that just 
blew up their whole service in the 50s and 60s. Um, in fact, Kim Philby is, plays actually a pretty big role in the book, and he has his own name because, I mean, he's right there, just the epitome of every agency had moles. So, um, yes, there was, they worked together, but also your very most precious assets you had to keep very tight because everybody was leaky. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. Um, so I was really enraptured to hear about how connected you get emotionally to the characters you're writing, that it comes from a place of emotion first. And thinking about great novels I've read where I get to the end and for days after I have that lingering, I want to know more. I want to know what my characters are up to. I get attached. <laughs> I'm just curious about what you go through personally as the writer, how you separate after the novel and how you can think of going on to write the next letters of Berlin book, how, how, yeah. what that process is like for you as an author. So I've, I've learned. I, I will tell you, um, my very first novel, it was called Dear Mr. Knightley, was published 10 years ago. And it is about a young woman who grows up in the Chicago foster care system. And she has a very painful childhood. And her self-defense mechanism is to hide behind the personas of literary characters. And she has to lay those personas down um, to find her own voice. My point in telling you that story is, she was a very hurt and angry young woman. I mean, that is part of her story. And I would get so into her character that I had a little trouble leaving that alone. And I was very much in my head. I walked through with my grocery cart a grocery store glass door. Walked straight, took the whole thing. Thank goodness it didn't shatter. Popped right off the hinges, slammed down. <laughs> Never saw the door. I was still in Samantha Moore's head. I'm, I don't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> but but to, to your question, I've learned to how to step back. Because I love that immersive feeling when I'm writing. That's magic on the page. So I really want that to happen. But when I leave my desk, I'm now able to leave it, which may be trained out of self-defense or <laughs> self-preservation. <laughs> but yeah, so it took, took time. <laughs> While we're waiting for another question, I mean, one of the things you delineate very beautifully in this novel is the reason people turn against their own countries. And there are different reasons. It, it is for love or it is for money. It really is love or money. Yeah. Uh, love of family members, love of country, or love of money. And would you say that that's really a through line of... Of, of spies? Yeah, of, of the, the turncoats. Yeah, no, I think it is. In fact, um, I did a lot of research on that point, and you're absolutely right. And I have Anya's handler say to her, I need to know your why. I need to know why you're in this game. Because if you're in this game for money, I promise you, you'll be killed within six months. If you're not in this for money, then we might be able to work together. Because your why is deeper, and you will sustain it. Money won't sustain you. So absolutely, that is a question. And it's one I thought through. Whereas an older James really was in it for the money. Really was in it but for the money. But he was in a safe position. Yeah. He was yeah. not sitting in a, a dangerous part of the world. Yeah. Well, he was in the U.S., though. That was very dangerous yeah. for him. But, 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 his, but he, he was about the money. I mean, you're absolutely right. And that didn't mean he would be killed within six months. You know, I mean, like, I'm not saying that was just what her handler said to her. He wanted to put that offer in front of her. 
but the motivation is different. And, and, um, and I think, you know, that motivation alone, so a great book on this, I think Ben McIntyre writes incredible nonfiction books, but he wrote a book called The Spy and the Traitor. Well, if you think about it, both were spies. Technically, both were traitors. And yet, he has separated these two between the spy, more virtuous sounding, and the traitor. Well, guess who's the traitor? Aldrich Ames. But Gordievsky plays the other side of that coin, is the spy. So, yes, it is um, part of the equation and part of our assessment about what we feel about them, too. Now, is Ames still alive? No. Didn't he die recently? I think he did. <laughs> but we don't, <laughs> we don't necessarily kill them in this country. No, we he, he died. For he died. life. Yes. Yeah, we have the new one. We have a new one uh, who was handling secrets, a young guy. Yes. Very young guy. Can't think of his name. But, and they, they come up from time to time. And what about the one who's sitting in house arrest in, what is his name? Is it Snowden? Edward Ed Snowden. He's still there, just in a room, wherever he is. <laughs> just, oh, he did go to, he did go. He, he defected. I think we have time for one more question. We can't have answered all of them. <laughs> So I love the idea that you're writing about strong women, because I'm actually here with a whole group of them tonight, and I, I'm sure the room's filled with them. But um, I do think that um, we still have a long way to go, women supporting other women, especially you know, corporate-wise and at a higher level. When you're talking about those women who are in these types of positions, um, where do they get the support from? I mean, they're not, are they willing to trust other people? Are they having, like, how do they deal with that? Um, I, think, I think they do have to trust other people. But to your point, um, I think in many ways it is harder. You know, a lot of those SOE spies that I'm talking about, they didn't get the sort of accolades that their male counterparts did. That is absolutely true. Um, Stephanie Rader, a spy, Cold War spy that I researched, was not given a military uniform that her colleague was. And a military uniform provides huge protection if you're caught, you'll be sent home. You won't be executed. Um, so so you're, you're right about that. But I think part of it is it's challenging to do anything truly alone. So yes, we do rely on each other. We do find people we can trust. We do find people who lift us up. Um, long way to go, but thank goodness we have each other. Well, thank you. Thank you, Catherine. I absolutely love this book. You are all going to enjoy it. Join us next week and in coming weeks, we have an incredible roster of authors. And thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House author series highlighting nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories. <laughs>